you have your copy of God's Word with you this morning, I do invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. You can also find the text for this morning, verses 18 to 25, on the insert that came along with your bulletin. Excuse me, along with a brief outline of today's message. Today we are going to be looking at the covenant of marriage. And just like how in Genesis 1, the creation of mankind was the pinnacle moment of creation itself, Here in Genesis 2, the creation of woman and the marriage covenant mark the pinnacle of man's calling. As we do this, we remember that a covenant, broadly speaking, is simply a divine agreement between two or more parties where there are promises, stipulations, blessings, and even consequences for breaking the covenant contract. And it pains me to have to say this this morning, but we really are going to have to focus our attention lest we view this topic as the world does. Marriage is something that is so commonly done and undone in culture today that even we as Christians can be a little desensitized to just how special this covenant agreement really is. And we want to take this seriously because as we read in the New Testament, God will use marriage and the marriage covenant to represent, to demonstrate his very relationship with the church through Christ. Marriage is meant to be a blessing. Sadly, society has tried to redefine it to justify its own terms, to ease its own conscience and to fit its own agenda. But what we will see this morning in God's Word is that marriage is clear. It is well-defined. It is for God and to the blessing of His people. With that in mind, please follow along with me as we hear from God's Word and learn about this covenant called marriage. I'll be reading from Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 18 to the end of the chapter. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs, and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This, at last, is bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. There is freedom from shame, from fear. 
There is freedom from worry and doubt in God and in His Word. Let us go to Him now and ask His blessing upon this time that He has given us. Let us pray. O Lord our God, I can think of fewer topics that we as a church need to proclaim with full vigor and effort and energy than the topic of marriage. Society has so skewed this beautiful, wonderful blessing from you that the only hope we have is to go to you and ask you for your mercy upon us. Father, I pray for us this morning. I pray for everyone, wherever they find themselves today. I pray that as they hear your word and now respond to it, that you would open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts, that we would receive it, that we would fear and love you, and that we would use it to transform not only our lives, but the lives of those around us. Dear Heavenly Father, be with us now in this time of study of your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. There are two institutions relating to man that God ordains before sin enters into the world. The first one we see is work. Work is part of the creation mandate. We've talked about this in our Genesis series. Man is told, tend the garden and have dominion over it. Here in our text, we see Adam naming the animals, fulfilling that calling that God placed upon him. This is his duty as image bearer before God. And the second institution we see before sin enters into the world is marriage. For Adam, there is Eve. And in his declaration of love and of commitment to her, he is promising himself to a lifetime of service and devotion. Moses, speaking as the mouthpiece of God, gives us a clear formula for marriage. Now, the reality is, sin has entered into our world. And depending on where you find yourself today, you may be a little nervous about hearing a message on marriage. Maybe you're in a difficult marriage. Maybe you have lost a loved one. Maybe you long to be married, but have not yet met someone who fits the biblical qualifications for a spouse. Maybe you feel called to singleness and are pressured by others because you have not yet agreed to marriage. Wherever you find yourself this morning, be careful. Be careful that you don't cloud what the Bible declares and says from the Lord and impose your situation on it. Instead, rather, let us do the reverse. Let us take God's word and apply it to our life and our situation, whether married or single or wherever else we find ourselves on this spectrum. We recognize that sin changes things and sin brings challenges. Life with others is difficult, whether you're married to them or not. Um, we will see this plainly as we go into chapter 3 in the coming weeks. But wherever you find yourself this morning, there is much to learn about this relationship that God uses to describe His relationship with us. And this is why it's applicable to all of us, no matter where we come from. Because of this, let's look together this morning and see four actions God takes in instituting marriage, and by doing so, defines how we're to relate 
and how Christ will relate to us. First, let's see that God creates in Adam a desire for companionship, 18 to 20. Secondly, let's see that God designs a helper to be compatible with man, 21 and 22. Thirdly, let's see that God defines what marriage will be, 23 and 24. And then, finally, let's see that God provides security and blessing through marriage in verse 25. There is much to unpack here, uh, so let's begin by looking at how God creates in Adam a desire for companionship. Up until this point in the creation account, everything has been declared to be good, or very good. Moses records for us God's reaction to the end of the first creation week, Genesis 1.31. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. But here in our text, remember, Genesis 2 is a zoomed-in view, a zoomed-in focus on what is taking place. Um, it slows down the pace a little bit. 131 is speaking after man and woman has been created, but here we have just Adam. And what does God say? He, for the first time, says something is not good. It's not good that man should be alone. Now, we need to think about this for a moment. This is not a declaration by Adam. Adam is not coming to God and telling him, God, this is not right. He's not coming to God and demanding, God, make me something better. Fix this situation. Deal with this problem. Adam is doing none of these things. It's God that says this situation is not good. But along those lines, be careful of what God is saying here. God is not saying Adam is not good. He's not admitting mistake in his creation. No, God clearly says here, it is not good that man is alone. Remember, mankind is created in the image of God after his likeness, Genesis 1.27. And we serve a triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, three distinct natures. One of the beauties and mysteries of the Trinity, the triune God that we serve, is that there is relationship and fellowship amongst the Godhead. And so when God looks at us, created in his image, after his likeness, he says, they must also have fellowship. For we, the Trinity, have fellowship. And we need to see also, just as much as it is God that notices this need in Adam, God is also the provider for that need. In the, last, in the same sentence, under the same breath, God declares, I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, we have to be careful here. Lest we look at this and denote um, inferiority, uh, that helper phrase can be misconstrued and, and sometimes uh, macho men can look at that and go, see, you're supposed to be second class, you're subservient, you're a helper. Please don't do that. Um, because if you, you take a little bit of biblical theology, you take this word and, and extrapolate it out over scripture, this word is used mostly of Yahweh in the Old Testament. So if, if you want to denote inferiority because of the word helper, then you need to say that of the triune God. Um, and, and just a few places uh, that speak to this, Exodus 18, 14, Deuteronomy 33, 7, 
Psalms 33, 20, 115, 9 through 11, 124, 8, and 146, 5 are just a few places that the term helper is used not in an inferior way, but are used to relate to and describe the God that we serve. So just as a, a word of encouragement and of warning here, just be careful um, what you take from this text because people have done so before. Different roles does not mean difference in value. And that, that is something that, again, it pains me to have to say that, but it is the reality that we find ourselves in. Now, if we jump back into our text, we find that God goes about revealing this need to man in almost a comical way, doesn't he? Out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not fit or found a helper fit for him. God had Adam... Adam, part of your dominion, part of your responsibility, part of your role as my image bearer is to name the animals. There's a lot um, in naming in the Bible. Uh, there was a lot of power in that. There was a lot of um, truth in that. And so God sends these animals by, and you can almost play it out in your head in a, in a comical way. Um, two animals come by, male chicken, female chicken, male goat, female goat, male zebra, female zebra. Don't know why I picked zebra there, but you can see that over and over, just two by two by two by two in almost this Noahic way um, where male, female, male, female. And think about that. We don't know how long this took, but he named all of them. He went through the whole list. And then, God, I don't have one. You can, you can almost hear him, can't you? You can, you can almost feel the burden that Adam would be at at this point. And God didn't have to tell him. God did not have to, Adam, this is not good. All God did was, Adam, fulfill your role for me. And Adam comes to this conclusion, there's no one like me. God is teaching Adam. He's showing him all of creation so that he would not long for it, but would long for something greater. And I want you to see something in the text. I want you to see something throughout this whole passage this morning. As much as this is about marriage, even more this whole passage is about Christ. Because what is God doing for Adam? Look at everything I made. Name it. Declare it. Make it your own. Adam comes to the conclusion there's nothing like me. I need something. I need someone like me. And what will God do? God will provide for him Eve. But ultimately, what is God doing? He's saying, you need something greater. You need something other than yourself. This world, this creation's not going to fulfill you. It's not going to bring you joy. It's not going to bring you satisfaction. It's not going to bring you contentment. What we're going to learn in chapter 3, neither is Eve. Neither is Eve. But who will? God. God will. God will fulfill that void. God will fulfill that hole that Adam is noticing and sensing in his life. And so, while God is showing Adam a desire for a partner, what he's really doing is showing him a desire for himself. And yet, God is kind and gracious to Adam. And God designs for Adam a helper to be compatible with him. Let's look at our next 
two verses. And I love this. Two chapters into the Bible, we already get our first surgical procedure. This is, this is awesome. So when the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to man. For a second time, we note, man is not the provider here. Man is not the one who gives himself what he needs. He is passive. He is asleep, a deep sleep. Now think about that and tell me this creation account is not about a foretaste of salvation through Jesus Christ. We are told in Scripture, we are dead in our sin. But the Bible actually doesn't use the word dead. What's the word the Bible uses more often than not to declare our state? Asleep. Man is incapable of providing what he needs. He can only rely upon God and trust God to deliver him from his greatest need, deliverance from sin and from death. And just like here in our text, we see God doing 100% of the work needed to carry out the act of provision. While God causes this deep sleep to fall upon man, he took one of the ribs. This could better be translated part of the side and made or designed woman. Matthew Henry famously and probably most beautifully comments on this passage. The woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, near his heart to be beloved. Adam lost a rib, and without any diminution of his strength or comeliness, for doubtless the flesh was closed without a scar, but in lieu of that, he had a helper made for him, which abundantly made up for his loss. Man looked at all of creation and could not find anything with which he was compatible, and so God designed one to be his companion. Marriage it's about companionship. It's about walking alongside one another as you strive to walk with the Lord. And yes, it is true. Some people are called to singleness and find their fulfillment completely and totally in the Lord, and that is a blessing. But for most of you, you will need a companion to walk with you in some, if not all, of this life. Marriage is not one over the other. It is not about control or power. It is about fulfilling God's calling hand in hand. Remember Genesis 1.28, a commentary over the totality of creation. God says to man and woman, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it and have dominion over it. And don't worry, young men in the crowd. If you have a strong desire to be married, God has not called you to singleness. You do not have to fear that he would be mean to you in that way. But I will say this to you. If you find yourself wanting to be married but not, the greatest thing you can do today 
to increase your likelihood to be married and to increase your joy and satisfaction is to grow in your walk with the Lord. Bar none. The greatest thing you can do today if you feel a desire and a call to be married is increase your walk with the Lord. That goes the same for all of us, by the way. It will greatly bless your marriage. But a wife is not going to fulfill you in the way that God is. And if you're looking at getting married just to make your life better, please find an adult um, that has been or is married after the service and ask them about how sanctifying marriage is. And in order of fairness, young ladies, let me lovingly tell you something you need to hear. Television is wrong. You do not need a husband in order to find fulfillment. You're enough on your own. You are created in God's image after His likeness. Think about this. Eve walked with the Lord before she walked with Adam. You do not need a husband. You need God. And never, never let anyone or yourself define yourself by that metric. A husband who walks with the Lord will be a blessing to you, but he will not fulfill you like the Lord will. God designed both men and women with that truth in mind. Marriage is a blessing and it is a vehicle to draw us closer to God, but ultimately it is God that we need. We know that because God is the one who defines and designs marriage for his own purpose. And we see this in our next section. Look with me. And again, we comment. God has provided everything to this point. The desire, the spouse, and now he is the one that defines what marriage will be. And he does it through this prophetic declaration from Adam. Adam, in joy of seeing his bride, declares, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. After seeing all of the created animals, Adam finally fulfills his God-given calling. And what was that? To name all things. Here, the pinnacle of his naming, the pinnacle of his job before God, he glorifies woman. Bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh. And this will be so special that elsewhere in Scripture, anytime you see the words bone and flesh together, it's a unique or, or special term for companionship and togetherness. It's, it's a closeness that harkens back to right here, to this moment. And it's in the very next verse, in reviewing this glorious moment, that God defines for us what marriage will be. He says this, verse 24, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Three key aspects to marriage we derive from this passage. First, man's priorities are to shift. He is to no longer focus his attention, his effort, and his energy upon his parents. Instead, he is to leave his father and his mother. This is not a sign of disrespect. Instead, this is a sign of devotion to the one he is committing himself to. Man is to devote himself to his wife. He is to commit to her fully and completely. He cannot do that if he is still binding himself to his own parents. Secondly, 
man is to hold fast to his wife. This is a binding relationship. That, that term is almost like glue. This term is, is meant to, to create a, a bond, a, a weld, if you will, that is not to be broken. Marriage is not to be entered into lightly, and it should not be dissolved except under absolute extreme cases. It is meant to last. Your biggest friend, partner, supporter should be your spouse. And then thirdly, man and woman are to become one flesh. This one flesh union, also known as to know in the Bible, is typically understood as engaging in sexual intimacy with someone. And this is good within the marriage covenant. Out of fear of awkwardness or misapplication, we have failed our children and this generation by not proclaiming that sexual intimacy within the marriage covenant is not only good, but it is a blessing. It is not helpful to our children to not speak on this topic. It is not helpful to leave this unsaid. The Bible talks about it. The Bible commands that we address it. And we owe it to our children and to our grandchildren and to our grandchildren to preach the good news that marriage is and the blessing that it brings. But sexual intimacy must only be enjoyed in this context as God has declared it and described it. Really loosely paraphrasing a wonderful quote by Vodi Bauckham on marriage and intimacy. He says this, Sexual intimacy within marriage is like a warm fire on a cold night. It brings joy to the home and brightens the room and delights all who gather. But take it out of marriage where it belongs. It will leave the fireplace, burn down the house, and consume everything in it and around it. Now, I need to speak to two major errors within society in light of this definition. I love you too much to leave this unsaid. One, God defines what marriage is because God designed marriage. This means marriage is between one man and one woman joining themselves before God. Anything else is not marriage. It is cohabitation and it is immoral. Society wants to all day long redefine terms to ease their conscience, make themselves feel better, and have us accept them for who they are. Homosexuality, polygamy, friends with benefits, and other sexual acts or acts of intimacy are not how God designed man and woman to relate to one another. And it is not loving as a Christian to watch this happen and do or say nothing, or even worse, say that I'm going to step back for the sake of tolerance. Sin is sin. And related to that, sexual intimacy is only for the marriage covenant. Teenagers, listen to me on this. Do not give to someone what's not theirs to take. It is selfish. It displays a pattern of a lack of self-control and if you're careful, if you're not careful, you can create lasting consequences that you may not be ready to handle. Don't listen to the world here. I'm telling you, you will thank me later 
if you heed these words today. Now, our very last section does tell us by following this pattern set out by God, this relationship will be a blessing to you. Let's take a moment and consider our final verse. The man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. There is no shame within the marriage that is in accord with God's word in accord to God's plan. Man and woman are a blessing to one another. But this goes deeper than physical clothing and shame. There's nothing hidden between Adam and Eve. They are bare emotionally, relationally, and conversationally. They are completely honest with one another. There are not walls. There are not barriers. There are not distractions. There are not arguments or other poor forms forms of communication. They are naked and unashamed. They are who they are together and before their God who walks with them. And this is vital to understand as we go into, Lord willing, next week in chapter 3 when everything gets messed up because of sin. But before we get there, let me remind you of one final truth as it relates to the marriage covenant. No matter where you find yourself this morning, whether it's married or not, this description should give you hope. Because Paul will tell the church in Ephesus this relationship between husband and wife is a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. And I can't state it better than he can, so I'm just going to direct quote for you. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ... So also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present to the church, might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands, Love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And verse 32. This mystery is profound, and I am telling you it refers to Christ and the church. Did you catch in that passage the responsibilities for husbands and wives? Christ has done both. Nothing that God tells husbands to be, he has not already done. Nothing God tells Christ or tells wives to be, he has not already done. Christ has completed fulfilled all of it for an unfaithful bride at that. This is huge for us as we think about marriage, but it's even bigger for all of us as we think about the God that we serve. Marriage is good, and it is a blessing for those that God provides it. But as we all know, only sinners get married. And that's to say nothing about the other person, because you know your own heart. Marriage between two sinners is difficult and hard. We hurt one another. 
We act selfishly. We desire ourself more than the other. But even in that, this is the picture Christ uses to describe his relationship with us. If you were here today, trusting in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, then you have a relationship sweeter than worldly marriage. And all of these blessings and all of these promises and everything that this text lays out is yours in Christ. And even better, you can't fulfill your part of the contract. You can't do it. We keep messing up. We keep failing. We keep going astray. Well, Christ not only holds up his end, but he holds up ours as well. So that the church might stand before him without blemish and holy. You church, us church, will stand before God holy and without blemish as the bride of Christ. It is guaranteed, it is certain, it is a fact, it will happen. And earthly marriage, as much of a blessing as it is, it is meant to show the world how if two imperfect people can live in accord to God's word and be blessed, how much more will all of us be blessed in him? And so wherever you find yourself this morning, I pray that you look at the topic of marriage from God's word and see how much it relates to you. Man cannot provide anything for himself. He needs God to save him. Just like Adam, who needed a companion, who needed a partner, who needed marriage defined, and who needed no shame in his life. God does all of this and more for us in Jesus Christ. That is who you are today, dear brothers and sisters. Let us take joy in it. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, what a beautiful, wonderful difficult proclamation. We delight that you have given us in your word clear instructions on what marriage should be. Lord, we recognize our own hearts. We recognize our own lives. And many of us may be very challenged by the words we have heard this morning. And wherever we find ourselves, whatever reaction we're feeling now, I pray that we would cling to you. Oh God, make me enough. At least make me okay for my spouse. At least let me be a little bit of what this calls me to be. And Lord, I know through your word and through your promises, you will answer that prayer because you delight in showing the world sinners can be married and glorify God. And if that's the case, how much more can a holy God unite himself to the church and glorify himself? Lord, we are an imperfect picture but through that, you display your perfection. We thank you for the opportunity to be a part. I pray for all of the marriages. I pray for those who are to be married. I pray for those who are single, who are divorced, who have lost loved ones this morning. I pray that you would comfort each one of us wherever we find ourselves today. And I pray all of this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.